Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. This is increment 64, and this is a special remote communion service where we're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper. All who are listening are welcome to be participants because you're all beneficiaries of our Lord's suffering and death and resurrection from the dead. So special remote communion service today, wherever you are listening to this message or watching, watching it, whether you're with someone or not, or whether you're alone, you have the uh, privilege now of participating in this communion service. And I hope you have the elements, the communion elements. If not, you can pause and go get them. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're asking today for the gift of the sense of your presence. We already know that we have the gift of your presence. We pray today for the sense of your presence in the midst of your body, the body of Christ, for the sense of the presence of our Lord Jesus who is portrayed for us in Revelation in high priestly garb and moving in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are the representation of his church, his people. May we have the sense of the presence of your son, the son of your love, who, according to Psalm 22, sings hymns to you and proclaims your name in the midst of the congregation. And so today, Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to participate in the Eucharist and in the intake and assimilation of your word as we continue in our study of the book of Hebrews, which to us is the best way to focus our attention on our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, again, we ask for the gift not only of the sense of your presence and the presence of your Son through the Spirit. But we also ask for the gift of repentance, and that means the gift of turning our entire attentiveness to you. It's a gift we know. Turn us, therefore, today, and we will be turned, and grant us that focus, that concentration that attentiveness, and the intention to please you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. None of the New Testament scriptures launch an attack on Judaism. Any interpretation of the New Testament that is related to an attack somehow on Judaism is a wrong interpretation. Hebrews, for example, is wrongly interpreted if one assumes that the PT who wrote it or preached it is doing so. There is a both a remarkable continuity and a notable discontinuity between Judaism and Christianity. When Jesus invoked the Eucharist, he did it in a remarkably innovative and creative way. He did it as a dramatic innovation within the Passover Seder. And we're going to see this at the end of the message when we segue, hopefully, 
smoothly into our communion service. Jesus did it not only as the Lord, but as the Paschal Lamb that was about to be sacrificed. From our standpoint, in the words of Paul the Apostle, from where we stand, looking back on history, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been slaughtered. He is the focus of the entire book of Revelation, a lamb that had been slaughtered, but who is standing. 1 Corinthians 5.7 matches 28 references to the lamb in Revelation, the lamb who is central both to Romans and to Hebrews and to the whole of the scriptures. And so Paul says our paschal lamb, Christ, has been slaughtered and therefore we are to celebrate the feast, it says, oddly enough, in 1 Corinthians 5.8. We are celebrate the feast. What is that feast? First of all, it's the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus in its general sense. And specifically, the feast is the Lord's Supper, which again is an innovation and a progression of the Passover Seder in one sense. So Christ our Paschal Lamb has been slaughtered and we are urged to celebrate the feast which is the higher integration of human living throughout our lives in Christ Jesus. But it's also specifically the feast of the Lord's Supper which we are to celebrate and this is so important we can't approach this Eucharist with any kind of flippancy or uncaring attitude because Paul said let us celebrate it with sincerity and authenticity and by that he's saying let us celebrate the feast attentively intelligently reasonably, responsibly, and in love. Now, one of the most important aspects of Judaism, and if I were to have a rabbi teaching me about Judaism, it would be Abraham Joshua Heschel. His book on the prophets is, is most remarkable and has a delineation of the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament that I have not seen as well done by any Christian theologians or writers. And Rabbi Heschel never claimed to be a Christian. But one of the most important aspects of Judaism is what we're going to look at in his book called God in Search of Man. And I'll get down to that in a moment. But there's another book that I've always had to have very close to me ever since I minored in religion at the University of Vermont from 1963 to 1968 rather to 73 when I quit and then came back in 76. I minored in religion and one of the books that was either recommended or assigned I can't remember was by Houston Smith that's H-U-S-T-O-N Smith and it was then called the religions of man but because you can't say man anymore they changed it to the world's religions. So in that book, and again, I can't do better than Houston Smith in terms of a 
brief, and I recommend it, a brief and sympathetic description of the world's religions in his book, I can't do better than Houston Smith, and I probably never will read beyond his comparative religions. He does a particularly good job on Judaism, and he does a pretty good job on Christianity, too. But he also studies Jainism, Shintoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and other of the world religions. But in his description of Judaism, Houston Smith talks about one aspect which he calls, quote, the personification of the other. That's capital O-T-H-E-R. That in the final analysis, ultimate reality, this really grabbed a hold of me years ago and again recently, that in the final analysis, ultimate reality is more like a person than a thing, more like a mind than like a machine. That's according to Judaism. In a section of his treatment of Judaism in his book, he writes this, and I want to quote this entire, actually, two paragraphs from Houston Smith's book. Again, on his treatment of Judaism, he says, through the Hebrew Bible, make, make that, though the Hebrew Bible contains references to gods, small g, other than Yahweh, and then he said, misread Jehovah, in many translations. Jehovah is a misreading of the word Yahweh. And he makes it very clear here. But though the Hebrew Bible contains references to gods other than Yahweh, this does not upset the claim that the basic contribution of Judaism to the religious thought of the Middle East was monotheism. For a close reading of the text shows that these other gods differed from Yahweh in two respects. First, they owed their origin to Yahweh. And he quotes Psalm 82.6, You are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Second, unlike Yahweh, they were mortal. And he quotes again Psalm 82.7, You shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. These differences are clearly of sufficient importance to place the God of Israel in a category that differs from that of the other gods, not merely in degree, but in kind, he says. And he goes on to say, they are not Yahweh's rivals. They are God's subordinates. From a very early date, possibly from the very beginning of the biblical record, the Jews were monotheists. In his second paragraph, he says, the significance of this achievement in religious thought lies ultimately in the focus it introduces into life. Please note that phrase, the focus it introduces into life. The reason I want you to pay attention to that phrase above all is because we have in Hebrews 3.1 in our next verse, Consider him, Jesus, the apostle and archpriest of our confession. Brothers and sisters, as partakers of a heavenly calling, do what? Consider him. 
Let your mind be concentrated on him. Let your attentiveness and your intentionality be directed and focused toward him. The focus is on Jesus in Hebrews. Not only that, but focusing on Jesus by saying, consider him, is not very far from Jesus' own words, remember me, as he instituted the communion service, as we call it, or the Eucharist. Remember me. It's not very far from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faithfulness. Neither is it very far from the theme of our now 64-hour-long treatment of Hebrews. We see Jesus. So again, I'll begin that second paragraph in Houston Smith's book again. It says, The significance of this achievement in religious thought lies ultimately in the focus it introduces into life. If God is that to which one gives oneself unreservedly, to have more than one God is to live a life of divided loyalties. If life is to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, we might say complete. If one is not to spend one's days darting from one cosmic bureaucrat to another, he says, to discover who's in charge that day. If, in short, there is a consistent way in which life is to be lived, if it is to move toward fulfillment, a way that can be searched out and approximated, there must be a singleness to the other, capital O-T-H-E-R, that supports this way. Makes me think of the new and living way which Jesus is to the Father. That there is has been the foundation of Jewish belief. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He closes, therefore, with the quote of the Shema Israel in Deuteronomy 6.4. Now, the connections of this description of Judaism to Hebrews are many and profound, but I'm going to only hit four of them before we segue to our communion service. I'm still teaching Hebrews, and I'm not going to let down that teaching aspect. Three of the, well, actually four of these stick out, as I said. The connections of this description of Judaism and Houston Smith to Hebrews, the book we're studying, are four. One, ultimate reality is more like a person than a thing. That's the first thing. The second is the singleness of Yahweh. Third, the subordination of other gods to Yahweh. And fourth, I've already mentioned, the focus it introduces into life. So let's consider these four things very briefly, and I think I may unfold these in later messages. One, in Hebrews, as well as in all the other New Testament writings, that ultimate reality is the person of Jesus. He is seen to have a universal significance, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles and to the whole world. That significance, as we have been seeing, is a redemptive 
saving, reconciling, rectifying significance. So in Hebrews, as well as all the New Testament, ultimate reality is Jesus. Secondly, that Jesus' ultimate reality does not oppose the monotheism of Judaism. Very importantly, that Jesus' ultimate reality does not oppose the monotheism of Judaism and of the Hebrew scriptures. Because, and, and the Shema for that, re, for that reason also, the Shema itself, if you compare Deuteronomy 6.4 with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 8.6, you'll get the idea. God is one because God as one eternal and uncreated being exists eternally in three persons identifiable in the scriptures as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The New Testament scriptures, while posing no threat to monotheism, present a Christological monotheism in which Jesus is included unapologetically in the divine identity. The high Christology, and that's what theologians call it, a high Christology views Jesus as having divinity, as being God as well as man. A low Christology would be really, I think, a false Christology. But a high, by high Christology is meant that Jesus Christ is understood, worshipped, and proclaimed as having the divine identity an identity that was in no way altered or diminished by his assuming of a human nature, by his taking hold of the seed of Abraham, as it says in Hebrews 2.16. The third thing, the subordination of other gods to Yahweh, finds a parallel and not a contradiction in the subordination of angels to Jesus. The Hebrew Scriptures has gods or Elohim in Psalm 82, 6 and 7, whereas the Septuagint version has for Elohim, angeloi, angels. And so we've spent a whole lot of time in Hebrews 1, 1 all the way through 2, 18 in that one large section showing the superiority of Jesus over angels. But we can fan this principle out a lot more. The fourth one this is the one that's going to segue right into our communion service. Well, they all will. The focus that Judaism introduces into life finds a match in Hebrews with the focus on Jesus that is enjoined throughout this homily. So let this focus be a point of departure into an essential element of the philosophy of Judaism as nucleated by Abraham Joshua Heschel, H-E-S-H-E-L. In his book, God in Search of Man, Heschel devoted an entire chapter to something called Kavanah, K-A-V-A-N-A-H. That's K-A-V-A-N-A-H. I suspect if you Googled that word, you'd find a lot of teaching about it and what it means in definitive expressions of what it means and also the pronunciation the Jewish pronunciation I saw pronounces it as Kavana I've also heard a more anglicized Kavana but or even Kavana but we're not talking about justice at the present moment Kavana 
With his usual pellucid style, Heschel includes several points about kavanah. Again, familiarize yourself with that word, K-A-V-A-N-A-H. I think it tends to summarize all of the five transcendent precepts. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, most of all be in love. But it has a specific reference to attentiveness. The Heschel includes in his book several points about kavana, which brings the concept into limpid focus. He says, quote, to have kavana means, according to a classical formulation, to direct the heart to the Father in heaven. Imagine that, to direct the heart to the Father in heaven. When Jesus was asked, how do we pray, what did he do? He directed the hearts of his listeners to the Father in heaven. You say this, you say, our Father who is in heaven. Jesus turned the attention to the Father in heaven. But you see, to see Jesus is also to see the Father, which is John 14, 7 through 9. But we'll get to that another time. And I just want you to see what, what Heschel teaches us about Kavanah. He also says, Kavanah is not the awareness of being commanded, but the awareness of him who commands. He capitalizes the word him, H-I-M. Yeah, again, let me say that again. Kavana or Kavana is not the awareness of being commanded, but the awareness of him who commands. The awareness of God, he says, rather than the awareness of duty. That's, this thing opens up into, I'm, right now, reams in my mind of doctrine are coming into play, and I have to be disciplined to stay on point here. But I think of Jesus saying, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, it's a matter of occupation with him and not commandments. If we're occupied with what he commands, then the commandments will be grievous to us. But 1 John 5, 3 says his commandments are not grievous. Why? Because our occupation is with him who commands, not with the commandments. A, it's really an inferior Christianity, in my view, and I use the word Christianity advisedly. It's really an inferior form of Christianity to be occupied with duty and commands rather than with our commander, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what communion is all about. Remember me. Remember my death till I come. Remember what I did in my first appearance when I put away sin by the sacrifice of myself until I come without sin being an issue this time and with bringing salvation. And so our focus and our awareness is on him who commands rather than the awareness of duty. Heschel goes on to say, quote, such awareness is more than an attitude of mind. It is an act of valuation or appreciation 
of being commanded, of living in a covenant, for us the new covenant, of the opportunity to act in agreement with God. That's amazing to me, and what comes immediately to mind is work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which is an experience of revering God and occupation with Christ. For it is God in you, both willing and doing of his good pleasure. The reason people get depressed is not because of circumstances. It's because they do not have enough moments of revering awe of God. Moments which hopefully will extend into minutes, which will hopefully extend into a lifestyle of reverential awe of God. And so, again, back to Heschel. He then says, and continues teaching us by saying, Kavanah is direction to God and requires the redirection of the whole person. That's why before I came here today, I was walking to the car and I said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, commit my soul, present my body, and give my heart. And I want him, I, I can't do this. I can't redirect my whole person, dedicate my whole person to God. I don't care what evangelist tells me to do that. I can only do that in the measure that I am focused upon him, attentive upon the one who commands and whose commands are always benevolent and kind and empowered by him. So in our spiritual lives in general and in our celebration of the Eucharist in particular, our focus is directed to the person who is ultimate reality. His name is Jesus. Don't you know? Reality is Jesus. The PT who preached Hebrews as well as any PT worth his salt urges his hearers or readers to an intensified focus to Jesus and an increased direction of his hearers to God, which requires the redirection of the whole person. We just learned that there's a word for this in Judaism, so I want to repeat it because this is one of the most important things I've taught. It's called Kavanah in the Hebrew. Abraham Heschel deserves the credit for today's teaching on that, except for that which the Holy Spirit's giving in innovation on it and expansion. He devoted an entire chapter to this word in his book called God in Search of Man, a philosophy of Judaism. Very instructive for Christians, incidentally. For an understanding of Judaism, I found no one better than Heschel. There's people that say they need a pastor. Well, if I was a Jewish individual, I would use him as my rabbi. I'd identify him as my rabbi. He's with the Lord now, though, and knows even more than he knew in his books. He, Heschel further describes Kavanah 
as the direction of the mind to the accomplishment of a particular act. Its purpose is to direct the heart. In other words, kavanam. You will love the Lord with all your heart. Kavanah is the conflation, in my view, of attentiveness and intention. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with the intention of obedience to him is the idea. It is the state of being aware of what one is doing. I guess Buddhists would call it Zen, but it's aware of doing what you're doing. Specifically with regard to the devotedness that is prescribed by Judaism, it is to direct the heart to the Father in heaven, as we've seen. Consequently, kavanah is attentiveness to God who gives the one with kavanah the intentionality of obedience. What Lonergan calls, in, for example, volume 7 of his works, in pages 61 and 141, if I remember correctly, he calls it obediential potency. That's a gift from God. It's God in you willing and God in you doing. God both wills and does in the one with kavanah, according to God's own good pleasure, as the one with kavanah has her experience of revering and trembling, which is so germane to going on to completion and fulfillment in life. Revering and trembling are simply the moments and even the minutes and then the extended periods of being in reverential awe of ultimate reality in Jesus Christ. These are the moments we need to lift us. And these, this is the real cure to sadness, to sorrow, to grief, to depression, to overmuch sorrow. The Many people are swallowed up by too much grief and too much sorrow as 2 Corinthians 2 speaks about around verses 9 through 11. So, fulfillment or completion in life means coming to know the love of Christ that even goes beyond knowledge and even beyond kavanah. Heschel also has a segment of his chapter called Beyond Kavanah. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge is to be fulfilled all right. It's to come to fulfillment all right because it is to be filled up with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19, so many roads of scripture coalesce right there. Jesus is all the fullness of God. To be filled up with all the fullness of God is to be filled up with Jesus because he is all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God resides in him. So if all the fullness of God resides in you, it's Jesus Christ being fully formed in you. It's to have reached completion as truly human beings. Jesus is all the fullness of God, and he is the fulfillment of what it is to be truly human. To be filled up with all the fullness of God is to have reached completion. Hebrews is all about completion. To be filled up with the fullness of God is to be filled up with Jesus the Christ, in whom all the fullness of divinity and of divine livingness resides. It is to have Christ fully formed in us, in Galatians 4.19. And pastors, I understand 
This is supposed to be Pastor's Month. Everybody's got to have a month now, but Pastor's Month. And so pastors labor in pain like women in childbirth pains until Christ is formed in those to whom he preaches. And to be fully formed in us is for us to be fully conformed on the other side to the image of God's Son, Romans 8, 29. And that's something that will finally be experienced only in bodily resurrection. That's why Paul said, not that I have attained, but I press on toward what? The exonastasis, the experience of resurrection. Press on toward it, which is all we can do this side of bodily resurrection, Philippians 3, 11 to 14. Now, we have not attained this completion, but we press on. We have kavanah as a gift from God in the meantime. And so we are attentive to our Father in heaven by being mindful of Jesus, whom to see is to see the Father. Our Father in heaven, on the other hand, is mindful of the Son of Man. He's mindful of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am very pleased. So we are in agreement with the Father by carefully considering Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we are seeing the Father, for they are one in being and in essence, and yet two distinct persons or subjects. We're doing this in our series called We See Jesus. We're doing this in our study of the homily called Hebrews. In that homily, the exposition that ends with, quote, for the same reason, that is, it was fitting that he made, be made perfect through suffering, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation expiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. That ends a section of Hebrews that began with 1.1. 1, 1. Now, so Hebrews 3.1, and this is where I want to begin in earnest our segue into the communion service and celebrating the Eucharist together. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, sanctified siblings, holy brothers and sisters, Participants in a heavenly calling. Please notice, that's what you are. Holy brothers and sisters, participants in a heavenly calling. And here's what you're to do. Carefully consider, contemplate, think about, turn your attentiveness to the apostle and archpriest of what we acknowledge as reality. Jesus. That's how I translated this. Our confession here is tes homologias, hemon. You'll see that in print. It's what we acknowledge to be reality and truth. It's what we genuflect to also and nothing else or no one else. We don't genuflect along with professional sports figures to communist China, which is what they're doing in their ignorance. But we acknowledge Jesus Christ, to whom every knee will bow. We acknowledge reality and truth, 
to be Jesus. The simple name Jesus, appearing alone, just Jesus, is carefully used by the PT ten times in Hebrews. 2-9-3-1-4-14-6-20-7-22-10-19-12-2-12-24-13-12-13-20. In the course of this homily, those ten times are strategically placed mentions of Jesus. He's otherwise called Christ Jesus. He's called Jesus Christ. He's called the Son of God. There's references to him in various ways, but the name Jesus alone, ten times. Jesus is the final word of God. Once the name is used in Hebrews with reference to Joshua, his name too is Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrews 4.8, but there, unlike Jesus the Son of God, General Joshua did not complete the rest that God intends for the people of God. There still remains one in the eschatology of our future. Jesus, the Son of God, is reality. In spite of what other people, institutions of power, news and media outlets, academia, religions, and so-called science have deemed to be true or real. Jesus is reality. Only enlightened eyes see Jesus as reality and as truth. Consequently, those who are not yet enlightened are bound to oppose our confession, even to the point of persecuting those who hold this confession. But great is the reward of those who are persecuted for that reason, as Luke 6.22-23 and Luke 6.35 says, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven in future world as well as now. In Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus, therefore, with enlightened eyes in Ephesians 1.18, who in fulfillment of his faithful obedience to God's saving will, I said, in faithful obedience to God's saving will. 1 Timothy 2.3 and 4, Isaiah 46.10, etc. He tasted death for everyone. We see him now crowned, therefore, with glory and with honor, royal, regal glory, priestly honor. We see him not with the eyes in our head, but with the eyes in our heart. The fool on the hill sees the world spinning round with the eyes in his head, but we see Jesus with the eyes in our heart, the interior place of reception of insights from our maker. If we are a tabernacle, our hearts are the holy of holies, where we allow Jesus to reside at home in Ephesians 3.17. It's in that holy of holies that we also receive insights that allow us to see Jesus with the eyes of our hearts. In Hebrews 3.1, we are urged to the contemplation of Jesus. Think about him. Think about him a lot. We're urged to a more attentive, a more intelligent, a more reasonable, a more responsible, yes, a more loving consideration 
of him. Remember me, he says, in the communion service. Consider him, says the writer of Hebrews, the apostle, and we'll be discussing what that means down the road, and the archpriest of our confession. The theme of Hebrews is Jesus. The aim of Hebrews is a heightened kavanah and a redirection of our whole persons to the ultimate reality that is Jesus. At once, the reality of God, the reality of humanity, the reality of all the new creation, that's Jesus. So with these two powerful themes, Jesus as ultimate reality and kavanah as our radical focus, guess what? We're prepared to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's my prayer that through his spirit, the Father will direct our whole persons to his Son. We have been learning of the Father's decree that the Son suffer to be brought to completion in solidarity with all of fallen humanity. And that this is the way that God chose to be fitting in the calling of many sons and daughters out of the appalling condition in sin to a destiny called glory. This lifting from the appalling state and condition of sin from where we have fallen short of the glory up to the glory is called a heavenly calling. We are partakers of a heavenly calling, and that's klesios epuraniu. That's the PT in agreement with Paul, who spoke of the upward call. Same thing. Tes ano klesios, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus in Philippians 3.14. So if you want an exercise, put Philippians 3.14 with Hebrews 3.1 on either side of your barbell and lift that for a while. And so I say as we partake in communion, Father in heaven, grant now that as we partake together as sharers in your heavenly calling, that our whole persons be turned to you and turned to your Son in affectionate remembrance. Grant us kavanah in his direction. Turn us and we will be turned. And now, if everyone has the elements, we will be ready to participate in them together in what we call the Lord's Supper. And it's a great honor to do this. And I must say, I share the heart of the Lord Jesus in doing this. In Luke 22:15, and I hope you'll pay attention to that verse sometime, it correlates with so much that we have in Hebrews. And this is what he said. This is a very touching scene. Luke 22:15. then Jesus said to them, his disciples, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's a profound... When you think about all that we've learned in Hebrews and all that we've been attentive to up to now about his suffering, he fervently desired to eat a Passover which he was going to transform into what we're going to do right now, a Eucharist in honor of him. And he did this before he suffered. 
If I knew I was going to suffer like he suffered, I wouldn't be able to institute anything or speak in any way. I'd probably be just falling all apart. But consider Jesus in Hebrews 3.1 isn't very far from remember me, he said, in 1 Corinthians 11.25. So I want to read some verses from Hebrews in which we have a coalescence of lots of themes like blood and flesh, body and blood, referring to Jesus, in which we have suffering and death, referring to Jesus. And we are to remember his death until he comes. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is conducive, not only to a spiritual life of reverence and awe, but it's also conducive to having this ceremony once in a while, not too frequently where it becomes run of the mill, but occasionally enough for it to be meaningful. My whole prayer today is that not only will this be meaningful as we participate, but that you will experience the very presence of the Son of God as we do it. And he is present at his supper today with you and with me, or tonight, or this morning, or wherever you're partaking of this. Consider Hebrews 2.9, our theme verse, but we see Jesus who was made inferior to the angels for a little while so that by the grace of God, and we learned that that actually probably means far from God, he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. I fervently desired, eagerly wanted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He didn't say before I suffer by tasting death for everyone, but that's what he meant. Now this is the section we just finished, a section within the larger section of Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 to 2.18. Here's 2.10 to 18. Listen to how body, flesh, suffering, like his brothers and sisters, all together, Hebrews 2.10, this is my translation developed from the Greek text as best as I can do it. For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete, we would say, through suffering. I fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 11, for both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, that's you and I, the sanctified, brothers and sisters. I fervently desired to eat this Eucharist with you today, my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. Maybe where you are, after this, you can sing a hymn of your own selection. It's up to you. That was our tradition before our breakup, but it'll be our tradition again. Verse 13 of Hebrews, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. 
Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, in that order, he also became a partaker of the same, so that through experiencing death, that's his suffering, he would render hors de combat the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. For he has surely not taken hold of the nature of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. For the same reason, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those. That means substantially help and support so that you feel it. Help those who are being tempted while being tested. And this brings to mind Hebrews 9, 25 to 26, capturing both of these ideas of suffering and death for sins and propitiation concisely. It says he didn't offer himself often as the archpriests enter into the holy places annually with the blood of others. If that were the case, then he would have had to suffer many times, to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But as it is now, once and for all, at the juncture of the eons, he appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. He is saying, in essence, I fervently desired to eat of this Passover, which will celebrate my own offering of myself for your sins and my sufferings for you before I suffer. Hebrews 10. By this will, that's God's saving intention, we are sanctified through the offering of the body. This is my body, he will say of Jesus Christ once and for all. Therefore, in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, having bold confidence to enter into the holy places with the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, through the curtain that is his flesh, there's blood first in 1019, flesh second in 1020, same order as blood and flesh Hebrews 2.14, this is my flesh, this is my body, this is my blood. My flesh is bread to feed the whole world, John 6.51. And then verse 21 of Hebrews 10, and since we have a great priest, a great priest, mega heroes, over the house of God, let's approach with a true heart, as Paul said, with sincerity and authenticity, with full assurance of his faithfulness, not full assurance of our faith, full assurance of his faithfulness, having our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience. No more guilt, which is an evil. Evil conscience equals guilty conscience. Guilt washed away by the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat, typologically speaking, in Jesus Christ's sacrifice or following it. 
Luke 24, 25, And Jesus said to them, Fools and slow of heart to believe, this is on the other side of his sufferings, that the prof all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things? And that's rejection and hostility from the chief priests and leaders in Jerusalem leading to his crucifixion and death and enter into his glory. Suffering and entering into his glory. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor having suffered. Then starting with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so this is how we'll participate in the communion today. Again, in Luke 22:15, he said to them, he says to us today, I have fervently desired to eat this Eucharist with you after I've suffered. Not only did he suffer for us on the cross, he suffers with us in our adversities, in our failures, in our infirmities, in the things we're going through now in our sorrows, in our sicknesses, in all the things that we're going through now. We should know that. He is with us today, administering this sacra sacrament. Matthew 26, 26. And we'll do this as he says to do this. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. They were eating the Seder, the Passover. Jesus took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink the cup. We'll close today by simply saying rejoice in the Lord always. Amen.